Hi, Malika Bilal here. Today, we're bringing you an update on a story we ran earlier in the U.S. election cycle. Enjoy. This year, the United States is looking at another presidential election, and the Democratic Party is aggressively trying to take back the White House from the Republicans. So for 2020, the Democratic nominee, Joe Biden, made an offer. I commit that I will, in fact, pick a woman to be vice president. So there's a possibility the U.S. could finally get a female vice president. I have no doubt that I picked the right person to join me as the next vice president of the United States of America, and that's Senator Kamala Harris. Well, not only female, but a U.S. senator who represents different communities as the daughter of immigrants, South Asian and Black. And Joe, I'm so proud to stand with you. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Election cycle after election cycle, Black women have become one of the most important electorates in deciding the fate of who will be moving into the White House. Now, with a Black woman as a VP candidate on the Democrats' ticket, we wondered, will they come out in support of Joe Biden? Imaya Nabanga is a presenter for AJ+, and she went to the south of the U.S. to find out how Black women are organizing and defying voting challenges. I caught up with her via Skype. Imaya, you took a trip on what's known as the Blackest Bus in America, the Black Voters Matter bus. Can you describe that for me? What does it look like? So it is a large passenger bus, and what an incredible name for a bus. And when I got inside, it was like this really nice kind of luxury bus, perhaps something you'd expect a musician or actor to have on tour. And it was filled with all of these Black women. And they were traveling through rural North Carolina, trying to gather up people to be able to go and vote on Super Tuesday in March. Harnett County, are y'all up? Trying to get black. You ready to go vote? 365, Black Voters Matter. The outside is painted black with parts of the Southeast United States painted on the outside because it's all the locations where this organization exists. Happy Super Tuesday! And we hit these very narrow streets, one lane in each direction. So imagine navigating a bus that large, larger than a school bus through very narrow lanes in rural North Carolina. It's really quiet outside. It's a chilly day and it's gray. If you matter, if you're thinking about not voting today, make a different decision. And there was even one point where the bus was backing up and you hear just kind of like the beep, beep, beep of a large bus backing up. And it just reminded me personally of a song. So then I sort of got silly and made up a rap as we were like sitting there <laughs> <laughs> and just wrap my way through it as we back the bus up. <laughs> back the bus up. There's such a moment of camaraderie on the bus. You as a reporter, but you're surrounded by these women. You're also a Black woman. So do you think that gave you a special angle on being on that bus and telling the story? I'm not just a Black woman. I'm a Black woman who votes and a Black woman who has been voting since she was 18 years old. So 
I've been in this game like a minute. And I was really interested to see and hear the stories of these people because I always knew growing up that when you turn 18, you vote. Some of the Black women I talked to talked about doing that with their families from a very young age, being a child and accompanying their parents to the voting booths and making that connection. And yet, not everyone has that story or understands accessibility, knows about voter suppression. And in some cases, as we've seen, especially over the last four years, people really feeling personally disenfranchised and believing that their vote doesn't matter. So take me onto the bus. Tell me about some of the people that you met. So one woman I met, her name was Danielle Brown. And Danielle Brown is a Black woman who grew up in a rural part of the U.S. She's from a small town. And so she's really used to people coming in and trying to secure her vote. I know what it's like to have people come visit your home every four years and saturate your town and become just simply a number. And so she's one of the many Black women in the U.S. who really not only try to galvanize Black voters, but beyond galvanize, drive them. We say Black voters matter because we put the power and the love behind the person and not necessarily the vote. It's not just about your vote, it's about you as a person. She's one of the many Black women in the nation who do that. Black women are sort of the backbone of the Black electorate. And as Danielle told me, you know, being in a small town, those are elections where one vote makes or breaks an election, where 10 or 15 votes can decide the fate of your city and your county. And then we've seen in the election where a few thousand votes in the presidential election in 2016 totally changed the course of the nation as we see it today. You mentioned that Black women are the ones organizing these communities, galvanizing voters to come out and vote, and that this isn't new. You know, you and I both know this. Black women have been igniting their communities and organizing for a very long time. Mm -hmm. You did a really good job digging into the history of the Black vote here in the U.S. What did you find? So in March of 1913, there is a large march in the nation's capital to support women's suffrage. And all of the founding members of Delta Sigma Theta march in that movement. Delta Sigma Theta is an African-American sorority, the second African-American sorority to be founded in the U.S. They're marching with white women who do not want Black women to have the right to vote. So here's a case where Black women, again, are doing the work despite the fact that those white women marching at the time wanted women to vote, but didn't even see Black women as women and didn't feel like it was valid that those women should have the right to vote. So 1913, the Deltas are marching as part of this women's suffrage procession in Washington, D.C. And then finally, in 1920, women get the right to vote. Hashtag not all women. Hashtag exactly, not all women. Not all women. So... Tell me about that disconnect. How long then did it take for Black women to be recognized? Oh, it takes more than four decades after that for Black women to get the right to vote. It takes the Voting Rights Act of 1965 to really guarantee Black women the right to vote. 
That is five years before disco really comes to take over America. That is how long Black women have had their voting rights secure. They almost bebopped to a disco ball. They were, they were that close. And yet, white, men, white women had voting rights when they definitely could two-step and jazz it up, right? Doing the Charleston. That's a really different time. Flappers versus like almost Donna Summer. Yes, the 19th Amendment said you couldn't be barred from voting because of your sex. But the fact is that Black women, and men for that matter, were still blocked from voting by a whole lot of racist local and state laws, especially in the South. The Voting Rights Act of 1965, one of the things that helped usher that in was a march in Alabama, the starting point of the Selma to Montgomery Bloody Sunday Civil Rights March in 1965. You went to that bridge, the Edmund Pettus Bridge, which coincidentally, activists are now trying to change the name of. Mm -hmm. Tell me about your trip there. What were you there for? So this year marked the 55th anniversary of the March on Selma. Across a bridge that's named for a Confederate general. And when I was there, I met a woman, Linda Lowry, who was 14 years old when she participated in that famous, less infamous march across the Selma's Bridge, where they tried to cross it. And so... She wasn't even a woman at the time, right? A 14-year-old is a girl. That's a child. Authorities thought at one point that she was dead and literally tried to put her in a hearse and and take her away. And she had to pop up and say, I'm not dead. Oh, wow. I'm not dead yet. And she had a lot of fear and concern because her younger sister had accompanied her to this. And during the chaos where law enforcement and state forces brutalized these people doing a peaceful protest, trying to secure their voting rights and and beat them and kick them and trample them. She came across her sister who she said looked like a rag doll. All I could think about was what I was going to tell my grandmother and my daddy that I was responsible for her and she was dead and I didn't protect my sister. Her sister was not dead. And one of the things that Linda said that was truly fascinating and really resonated with me was that in 1965, it was the children of Selma that March was beaten, went to jail. So our parents would not lose their jobs and the families would not be broken up. Many of the people who marched were children because they didn't want their parents to lose their jobs doing this. And I feel like it kind of mirrors what we're seeing now, where you're seeing a lot of Black girls and Black young women really be the driving forces behind a lot of these movements. Twenty twenty marks the one hundredth anniversary of the Nineteenth Amendment. So just weeks ago we saw headlines extolling a century of women voting. But we know the reality for black women is that they only got that same right 
about 55 years ago with the Voting Rights Act of 1965. It was legislation that prohibits racial discrimination in voting in the U.S. Still, even today, that discrimination still exists in different forms. I asked Amayan what voter suppression looks like for Black women in 2020. Voter suppression in 2020 looks like a variety of things, and it's long lines. It's voter ID laws, because for some people, they don't have a birth certificate to show to even get a state-issued ID because their birth certificate is their name written in a Bible that someone wrote on the day that they were born and they were gifted. It is, some people would even say, the, the fact that being incarcerated causes you to lose your right to vote. Even in Florida, where they had rescinded the law, the public had said, hey, we want to restore voting rights to formerly incarcerated people. And then the government immediately enacted all these things with them, made it impossible, saying that they had to pay back X amount of money, right? Which these people wouldn't have. Some people would say that is voter suppression. Closing polling places is part of voter suppression. No one should be having to wait in line to cast a ballot. Waiting in hours long lines, waiting a full day, those are not the kinds of things that you see in wealthier spaces or places, which very often happen to be white. And we forget about all the things that play into voting. Cars cost money. And so if you don't have money and you need transportation to get to your polling place, as opposed to someplace that you could easily walk to from your home or your place of work, right? That's a barrier to entry. We wanted to know more about how Black women organized in the U.S. and who's out there helping them avoid the obstacles placed in their way during the 2020 elections. I'm Glenda Carr, co-founder, president, and CEO of Higher Heights. Higher Heights Leadership Fund is a membership-based organization in New York that helps Black women to reach what they call their full political leadership potential. We asked Glenda how they're helping Black women battle voter suppression. One of the things that we did very early on in Higher Heights was to launch the hashtag Black Women Vote campaign. A campaign that if you go to blackwomenvote.com gives you everything you need um, to prepare to vote and to organize your network to the polls. And, and that being said, you know, enter 2020 and we have the backdrop of the election with COVID-19. And so we, we're re-envisioning what voting looks like. And so we want to ensure that Americans and particularly Black women are informed about all of these changing rules around voting in 2020. So many of our seniors in our family, they are not going to trust, unfortunately, vote by mail. And so we're going to be in some very strong conversations with the elders in our family about we want your vote to count and we want you to vote, but how do we make sure that you go and you're safe? And you're consolidating voting sites and you've been voting there for 20 years, 30 years. So how do we get transportation and ensure that we are moving our community to the polls, that you're wearing a mask? But the challenges do not end there. Voting by mail brings other factors into play. The United States is a big country. And in some rural places, the closest post office can be miles away. That, plus the current debate over the U.S. Postal Service and its ability to send and deliver ballots on time. Also, stamps. In many states, you're going to need a stamp, 
right? And a stamp is actually a financial barrier. And frankly, if you don't have any, how many people have stamps at your house? And so the notion of having to go out to buy a stamp or buy a book of stamps is something that we need to think through. Because like, again, not every, not every state is going to provide postage. So Black women are out there in their communities mobilizing people to vote. They are a voting powerhouse. But yet, Black women still lack representation in these important chambers of power all across the country. Why is that? Over the last several election cycles, we've seen a record number of Black women run and win in Congress. We sent five Black women to Congress in 2018. There are currently 25 Black women serving in Congress. And so that's a steady game. Black women are a little shy of 8% of the population. We're like 7.9% of the population. So when you hear people talk about a reflective democracy or parity, say we'd be 8% of Congress. We're currently 4.3% of Congress. And where you see a blatant lack of um, representation is in the United States Senate. Easy math. There's 100 members of the U.S. Senate. We are 1% of the Senate. One Black woman. We've actually only elected two Black women. 1992, Carol Mosley-Braun. My state. Illinois, very proud. And then in 2016 with Kamala Harris. So there's work to be done. Our research with the Center for American Women in Politics, where all of the statistics I've been sharing comes from, shows that when you see Black women running, winning, and leading, you actually will see more Black women stepping off the sidelines. We asked Glenda what she thinks Biden's pick of Senator Kamala Harris as vice president might mean for the electorate. Vice President Biden made a bold proclamation when he said that he was going to choose a woman. And during the selection process, not one, but two, but six Black women were talked about as potential running mates. The importance of Kamala Harris is threefold. Her impact on the way people perceive leadership will have an impact on our unborn daughters and granddaughters and will truly change the landscape of political leadership. She also has a bold vision for this country. That day that she stepped on the Democratic Convention stage, she brought with her the legacy of Black women a century old and said she was a Black woman with diverse identities, including a very deeply rooted Black culture, being a product of historically Black colleges, and a member of a historically Black Greek letter organization. This completely shapes the discussion around the preparing of the next generation of Black leaders. We brought the topic of the vice president back to Amayan. Now that Senator Kamala Harris is a VP candidate, we wondered if that's the closest a Black woman will get to the highest leadership position in the U.S. Not since 1972 has a Black woman been up on the national stage as a candidate for president. I am not the candidate of Black America, although I am Black and proud. That was Shirley Chisholm, the first African-American woman in Congress back in 1968 and the first woman and African-American to seek the nomination for president of the United States. And that's from one of the two major political parties. Is vice president the closest we're going to get to that national stage in this era? What do you think? 
there's something about being a woman in this nation, in this world, that a lot of people don't like, regardless of your race. And there's something about being Black in this nation and in this world that a lot of people don't like. And so for a Black woman, the barrier to entry is so much higher, as it is in everything that we do and have done. But that doesn't mean a Black woman can't do it and that she won't do it, because we've seen Black women got us to the moon, literally. For those of you who haven't seen Hidden Figures, right? Black women got us to the moon. So I hope it happens because this country is nearly 250 years old and it shouldn't be that all of the presidents in that time are men and all but one of them is white. When Black people are nearly 13% of the national population in addition to other people of color that's just black people that's not accounting for hispanic people or asian people or multi-race people or indigenous people but i think black women in particular will continue to fight for their place and space on the stage and that's the take this episode was produced by Ney alvarez with dina kispe abigail oni wohacha Alexandra Locke, Priyanka Tilve, Amy Walters, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan was the sound designer. Natalia Aldana is our engagement producer. Stacey Samuel is The Take's executive producer. And Graylin Brashear is Al Jazeera's head of audio. Special thanks to Allison Voslo, Fanny Texier, and Dan Yah. If you haven't subscribed to the show yet, go to the episode's description. You'll find all the extra information about this topic, but also our social media handles. And for more, just go to podcast.aljazeera.com slash the take. We'll be back.